podcast for this week. We continue our adventure with 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. One of my all-time favorite Disney rides is getting a new fresh coat of paint. I try something new on the internet, and I've got some really exciting news to share. Throughout this week, we get chapters 4 and 5 of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. I talk about Splash Mountain a little bit, which is pretty exciting. Uh, I tried out this thing called a Fiji, which we'll get into here in a little bit. And I've got some fun personal news on my end that's really exciting, and I couldn't be happier about it. So that's that's all all exciting and all coming up here in this episode. But first, if you enjoy the Going Cast and want to support the Going Cast, there's one way you can do that. You can go to patreon.com forward slash going up cast, or you can come to Patreon, get access to the Pokemon Nuzlocke run, which is a Patreon exclusive series I'm doing. We're playing Ultra Sun. Um, an episode is about to go up today, yesterday, an episode has gone up sometime, either today or yesterday, and, um, it's, uh, it's a good one, I'm very excited about it, and we also do monthly live streams, and for July, oh boy, I'm not sure, we'll have to figure that out here pretty, pretty soon, uh, what we're doing, and when we're doing it, I'll let you guys know. Uh, but it's still technically June, so, yeah, I really need to make those, like, bi-monthly or something, just do them more often, but we'll figure that out later. I hope you're all doing well. Um, it's it's been a, an interesting uh, couple of couple of weeks uh, over and over my neck of the woods. You'll find out more details here in a little bit. Um, but I like I've like changed my schedule, work and stuff like that. So it's all been fairly turbulent. Um, but you know, June is almost behind us. I believe this is the last day of June. Yeah, it's June thirtieth, <sighs> and then we get right into the meat of summer with July. But it, it feels weird to me. It, like, for me, summer never really hit because it's been like gray, gray and rainy pretty much all June long. So, oh well. I hope I can actually like get some rays and do some fun kayaking adventures here pretty soon. Uh, that would be that would be most appreciated. But let's stop the chitter-chattering and get into the podcast, which now occurs to me is predominantly chittering and chattering. Recently, I've been trying a lot of different things uh, across the interwebs, uh, including MeUndies, which um, I'll be honest, I have ordered more MeUndies because it's like they shine like a beacon in my underwear drawer. Every other pair of underwear I own is like black or gray, but these are like blue with orcas on them and they just make me happy. So I was like, fuck it. That's a good enough reason. And, you know, they're comfy. So I ordered more. Um, I actually became a member because it dramatically reduces the price of the underwear. Anyway, um, I saw this other thing the other day from a different company called Fejays, F-E-E-J-A-Y-S, Fejays, um, that were sweatpants with like slippers basically sewn to the bottom of them. And I was like, oh, that's kind of a neat idea. Um, but my, my worry with the sweatpants was that like, you know, the foot size isn't going to be big enough, or if it is big enough, then the pants won't fit right, or the length won't be right. I felt like there were too many, um, too many variables there to make a sufficient sweatpant sock product. Um, so actually what I've taken to doing is tucking my sweatpants into my socks, um, because that provides the, the VJ experience, um, with the guarantee that it fits properly. So I've started doing that. Um, but I kept scrolling down their page. And I saw that they had sweaters, like sweatshirt hoodie things with mittens. And I was like, all right, now you got my attention. Now we're talking. So uh, I bit the bullet and got me one of those. I got a Fiji. Um, I got an extra large, which um, had I known that how they do sizes, I probably would have gone like two or three sizes bigger. 
Um, the extra large fits, but it's a snug fit, you know, like it wasn't like the big baggy sweatshirt I was looking for. It's a, um, it's a, just a normal fitting sweatshirt. Um, it's actually kind of tight. So if you do order from these guys, go like a size or two up from what you think you would have gotten if it was a sweatshirt from like anywhere else. So if you normally are a large and you get like an XL for a sweatshirt, maybe go for that double XL if you want a baggy experience or the XL if you want a snug experience. Um, if you go for what you normally wear as like a t-shirt, then that shit's going to be too small. Um, but I will say that, um, it's tremendously comfortable. It seems to be made out of decent materials. Um, and the mittens function exactly like you think they would. The big floppy mittens. Um, oversized one might say. Uh, which just adds to the plushy comfort comfiness. And each mitten has like a slit in it, um, around like the, I don't know, the, like the knuckle joint of your fingers. So you can actually just pop your hand through the mittens and like use your hands um, outside of outside of that mitteny comfort. So yeah, um, I I think they are they're, they're it's it's a good sweatshirt hoodie thing. It makes me happy and it keeps me warm and fluffy. I'm wearing it right now. In fact, I'm just enjoying the the plushiness of the mittens. It's just um, it's nice. So yeah, uh, that one's that one's pretty good. I can't talk about the the sweatpants because didn't get them. Um, but you can just tuck your sweatpants into your socks and then you'll be fine. Um, but since I don't have mittens readily accessible, this one seemed more logical to me. And it, it does its job well. It is exactly what it says it is. It's a hoodie sweatshirt with mittens attached to it. Can't go wrong. It's comfy as hell. Let's move on to the next thing in the podcast. Alrighty. Let's get back into this. Books to read. Uh, that one. What chapter are we on? I think it's chapter four, to be honest with you guys. Uh, oh yeah, that's right. <laughs> I just scrolled past as Master Wishes, and I'm like, oh yeah, I gave him like, I gave that fucking manservant like this weird ass, um, like Igor from Frankenstein voice. Oh, that's fun. And right, let me pour my tea before we get started in this. I'm drinking out of a mug that is soon to be horribly outdated. And that is the the zippity doodah mug from Splash Mountain. It's getting a new coat of paint, which is totally fine with me. Because I will have the memories of what Splash Mountain used to be. And my favorite all-time uh, Disney ride song, which is the Splash Mountain medley. It's like 10 minutes long. It's the whole thing. And it has zippity doodah in it. I love it. Anyway, chapter four, Nedland. Commander Farragut was a good seaman worthy of the frigate he commanded. His ship and he were one. He was its very soul. On the cessation, on the whale question, no doubts arose in his mind. and didn't allow the animal's existence to be disputed aboard his vessel. He believed in it. Uh, he believed in it as certain pious women believe in the Leviathan from the Book of Job. Out of faith, not reason, the monster existed, and he had vowed to rid it of the rid the seas of it. God damn. I read like the first three chapters so flawlessly, and this one I'm stumbling all over my words. I haven't had a lick of alcohol since yesterday. <laughs> the man was a sort of knight of roads, a latter day Sir Diodone of Gozo. Sure. On his way to fight an encounter with the dragon devastating the island. Either Commander Farragut would slay the narwhal, or the narwhal would slay Commander Farragut. No middle of the road for these two. Not these two. The ship's officer shared the view of their leader. 
He could be heard chatting, discussing, arguing, calculating the different chances of an encounter, and observing the vast expanse of ocean. Voluntary watches from the cross tree of the top gallant sail were self-imposed by more than one who would have crushed, cursed such toil under any other, other circumstance. As often as the sun swept over its daily arc, the masts were populated with sailors whose feet itched and couldn't hold still on the planking of the deck below, and the Abraham Lincoln's stepmost hadn't even cut the suspected waters of the Pacific. As for the crew, they only wanted to encounter the unicorn harpoon it, haul it on board, and carve it up. Gross. They surveyed the sea with scrupulous care. Besides, Commander Farragut had mentioned that a certain sum of $2,000 was waiting for the man who sighted the animal, be he cabin boy or sailor, mate, or officer. I'll let the reader decide whether eyes got proper exercise aboard the Abraham Lincoln. Aboard the Hispaniola! You know, I will say this for Treasure Island, that's a much more interesting ship name than the Abraham Lincoln. But I suppose this book does redeem itself with a ship named the Nautilus, which is a great fucking ship name, and you know instantly what I'm talking about. It is iconic. Anyway, as for me, I didn't lag behind the others, and I yielded to no one my share in these daily observations. Our frigate would have been would have had five score good reasons for renaming itself the Argus, after the mythological beast with a hundred eyes. The lone rebel among us was Council, who seemed utterly uninterested in the question exciting us and was out of step with the general enthusiasm on board, mostly because you said you were going to give him a chance to not come on board, and then you kind of didn't, so... Well, there you go. As I said, Commander Farragut had carefully equipped his ship with all the gear needed for a fish of a gigantic whale variety. No whale. I'm not saying the word anymore. What is it? Cetacean. I think it's Cetacean. I'm pretty sure it's what it is. We'll go with that. We'll go with that pronunciation. No whaling vessel could have been better armed. We had every known mechanism, from the hand-hurled harpoon to the blunderbuss firing barbed arrows to the duck gun with exploding bullets. On the forecastle was mounted the latest model breech-loading cannon, very heavy barrel and narrow of bore, a weapon that would figure in the Universal Exhibition of 1867. Made in America, this valuable instrument could fire a 4-kilogram conical projectile an average distance of 16 kilometers without the least bother. So the Abraham Lincoln wasn't liking in means of destruction, but had better still. It had Nedland, the king of harpooners. Gifted with uncommon manual ability, Nedland was a Canadian who had no equal in his dangerous trade. Dexterity, coolness, bravery, and cunning were virtues that he, the Nedland, possessed to a high degree and took to a truly crafty baleen whale or an exceptionally astute sperm whale to elude the thrust of his harpoon. Nedlidge was about 40 years old. A man of great height over six English feet. Why, my word. It's a me over a meter. He was powerfully built, serious in manner, not very sociable, sometimes hedgehog, and quite ill-tempered when crossed. His looks caught the attention, and above all, the strength of his gaze, which gave a unique emphasis to his facial appearance. Commander Farragut, to my thinking, had made a wise move in hiring on this man. With his eye and his throwing arm, he was worth the whole crew all by himself. I can do no better than to compare him with a powerful telescope that could double as a cannon always ready to fire. To say Canadian is to French and as unsociable as... Um, to say Canadian is to say French, and as unsociable as Nedland was, I must admit he took a definite liking to me. No doubt it was my nationality that attracted him. Ooh. Oh. What the hell's the narrator's name? I forgot. Oh well. It was an opportunity for him to speak and for me to hear that old Rabelaisian dialect. Rabelaisian? Rabelaisian. Whatever. Dialect still used in some Canadian provinces. The harpooner's family originated in Quebec. 
Um, and they were already a line of bold fishermen back in the days when this town still belonged to France. Quebec is a gorgeous city. I fucking love Quebec. Um, Quebec City. The province is good, too. Um, based on my, my brief experience with Quebec City. Anyway. Little by little, Ned developed a taste for chatting. And I love hearing the tales of his adventures in the polar seas. He described his fishing trips and his battles with the great natural lyricism. His tales took on the form of an epic poem, and I felt I was hearing some Canadian Homer reciting his Iliad of the High Arctic Regions. I'm writing up this bold companion as I currently know him, because we've become old friends, united in the permanent camaraderie born and cemented during only the most frightful crisis. Ah, oh, my gallant Ned! I ask only to live a hundred years more, the longer to remember you. Interesting. Um, so... Longer till you remember you. So it's like, we've become old friends. United in the permanent camaraderie So does that mean that the narrator and Ned survive this ordeal? I guess we'll find out. Or perhaps he's remembering Ned and the, you know, the echelons of the past. Ugh. Or is this whole book written in, um, in media res, which is a fancy, fancy, fancy term that basically means this story is being told to us um, well, actually, in media res is that whole thing where, like, the movie starts, and you watch some action with no context, and then the camera stops, and you hear, like, the skidding of the, the record, and he goes, yeah, that's me, bet you're wondering how I ended up here, huh? And then, the, like, the next 40 minutes of the movie are the flashback leading up to the action you saw at the beginning, that's, that's in media res. That is, it's, it's a method of storytelling that starts in the middle of the climax, Tells you all the stuff that led up to the climax, resumes the climax, and ends the movie. That's what it is. That's how that structure works. So when we are told the entire book from the perspective of a character who just lived the adventures of the book happening concurrently in the past, you know, like this entire book is basically a recount of the adventure, not the adventure happening in real time. Um, you could argue this entire story is in media res, um, especially if it started with some statement like, Bet you're wondering how we killed that monster, huh? But it didn't. So, anyway, that's fine. Learn something new every day. And now, what were Nedlin's views on the question of this marine monster? I must admit, he flatly didn't believe in the unicorn and alone on board. He didn't share the general conviction. He avoided even dealing with the subject, for which one day I felt compelled to take him to task. During the magnificent evening of June 25th... Holy shit, oh well. I was about to be like, that's today! But it's not. Today's the 29th. Um... In other words, three weeks after our departure, the frigate lay abreast of Cabo Blanco, 30 miles of leeward of the coast of Patagonia. Holy crap. They've, they've made some progress. I guess it has been three weeks. Uh, we crossed the Tropic of Capricorn and the Strait of Magellan opened less than 700 miles to the south. For eight days we're out, the Amerlingen would plow the waves of the Pacific. So it t it's taken them a month to sail down the coast of the Americas so they could circle Patagonia um, at the bottom where Tierra del Fuego and sail back up the western coast. Uh, which I guess means this is before the Panama Canal in the 1800s. The Panama Canal was built in 1881. So it's actually not that far from um, the construction of the Panama Canal. But the Panama Canal is... Wow, the Panama Canal is 51 miles. That's a... That's a lot bigger than I thought. Um, to be honest with you, that makes a lot of sense, though. God, what a useful waterway that is, huh? Panama Canal. They found the skinniest part of Central America, and they just cut a line right through it. Shaving off, like, 
apparently probably like a month of sailing time going all the way around South America. Um, I wonder what that did for like trade in South America, you know, now that uh, ships can basically bypass that entire continent. Um, interesting. I don't know. I bet there was a lot of protest about it. Ugh. Anyway. Seated on the afterdeck, Nedlin and I chatted about one thing or another. Staring at that mysterious sea whose depths to this day are still beyond the reach of human eyes. Still true. Quite naturally. I led our conversation around to the giant unicorn. And I weighed our expedition's various chances of success or failure. Then, seeing that Ned just let me talk without saying much himself, I pressed him more closely. I forgot the voice I used for this character. Ned! I asked him. How can you sp uh, still doubt the reality of this cessation we're after? Do you have any particular reason for being so skeptical? The harpooner just stared at me a while before replying, slapped his broad forehead in one of his standard gestures, closed his eyes of his to collect himself, and finally said, This might be Professor Arnox. Ned, you're a professional, professional whaler, a man familiar with all the great marine mammals. Your mind should easily accept this hypothesis of this enormous cessation, and you ought to be the last to doubt it under these circumstances. That's just where you're mistaken, Professor, Ned replied. The common man may still believe in fabulous comets crossing outer space, or in prehistoric monsters living near the Earth's core. Ah! Ah! <laughs> Clever. Clever Vern. To reference your other books like that, that's pretty fun. Prehistoric monsters living at the Earth's core. Journey to the center of the Earth would be a fun one to read. Might do that one next. We'll find out. But astronomers and geologists don't swallow such fairy tales. It is the same with whalers. I've chased plenty of cestations. I've harpooned a good number. I've killed several. But no matter how powerful or well-armed they were, neither their tails nor their tusks could puncture the sheet iron plates of a steamer. Ever so, Ned, people mention vessels that narwhal tusks have run clean through. Wooden ships, maybe, the Canadian replied, but I've never seen the like. So till I have proof to the contrary, I'll deny that baleen whales, sperm whales, or unicorns can do any such thing. Listen to me, Ned. No, no, Professor. I'll go along with anything you want except that. Some gigantic devilfish, maybe. Even less likely, Ned. The devilfish is a meal mollusk. And even its um, even this name hints at its semi-liquid flesh because of the Latin meaning soft one. The devilfish doesn't belong to the vertebrate branch, and even if it were 500 feet long, it would still be utterly harmless to a ship like the Scotia or the Abraham Lincoln. Consequently, the feet of Krakens or other monsters of that ilk must be relegated to the realm of fiction. So, Mr. Naturalist, Nedland continued to bantering tone. You'll just keep on believing in the existence of some enormous cessation. Yes, Ned. I repeat with conviction backed by factual logic. I believe it is the existence of a mammal with powerful constitution, belonging to the vertebrate branch like baleen whales, sperm whales, or dolphins, and armed with the tusk made of... Um, a tusk made of horn that has tremendous penetrating power. Or <laughs> Pruna put in, shaking his head with the attitude of a man who doesn't want to be convinced. No, um, well, my fine Canadian, I went on. Such an animal exists if it lives deep in the ocean, if it frequents the liquid strata located miles beneath the surface of the water. It needs to have a constitution so solid it defies all comparison. Why this powerful constitution? Ned asked. Because it takes incalculable strength just to live in the deep strata and withstand its pressures. Oh, really? Ned said, tipping me a wink. Oh, really? And I can prove it to you with a simple, with a few simple figures. Bosh, Ned replied. You can make figures do anything you want. That's true, actually. You can manipulate data till the cows come home. I can even change what time the cows came home. Because fuck you. Oh, boy, here's a fucking... All right, here we go. I love the nerdy voice, so here we go. <clears throat> in business, Ned, not in mathematics. 
Listen to in business, no, not in mathematics. That's very true. I can manipulate figures to represent whatever the fuck I want in business because that's just kind of how it goes. You'd think that'd be the one place you'd want numbers to remain steady, but nope. Anyway, listen to me. Let's accept that the pressure of one atmosphere is represented by the pressure of a column of water 32 feet high. In reality, such a column of water wouldn't be quite so high because here we're dealing with salt water, which is denser than fresh water. Well then, when you dive under the waves, Ned, for every 32 feet of water above you, your body is tolerating the pressure of one more atmosphere. In other words, one more kilogram per each square centimeter of your body's surface. So it follows that at 320 feet down, the pressure is equal to 10 atmospheres, to 100 atmospheres at 3,200 feet, and then to 1,000 atmospheres at 32,000 feet. That is uh, uh, about, um, that is at about two and a half vertical leagues uh, down. Which is tantamount to saying if you could reach such a depth in the ocean, each square centimeter of your body surface would be experiencing 1,000 kilograms of pressure. Now, my gallant Ned, do you know how many square centimeters you have on your bodily surface? I'm in the foggiest notion, uh, Professor Arnox. About 17,000. As many as that. Yes. And since the atmosphere's pressure actually weighs slightly more than one kilogram per square centimeter, your 17,000 square centimeters are tolerating 17,568 kilograms at this very moment. Without my noticing it. Without your noticing it. If you aren't crushed by so much pressure, it is because the air penetrates the interior of your body with equal pressure. When the outside and the inside pressure are perfectly balanced, they neutralize each other and allow you to tolerate them without discomfort. When the water, it's another story. Yes, I see, Ned replied, growing more interested. Because the water surrounds me, but doesn't penetrate me. <clears throat> Precisely, Ned. And so, at 32 feet below the surface of the sea, you'll undergo a pressure of 17,568 kilograms. At 3,200 feet, or 10 times greater pressure, it's 175,680 kilograms. At 3,200 feet, or 100 times greater the pressure, it is 1,756,800 kilograms. Finally, at 32,000 feet, or 1,000 times greater the pressure, it is 17,568,000 kilograms. In other words, you will be squashed as flat as if you had been yanked from between planes of high hydraulic press. Fire and brimstone, Ned put in. All right, then my fire and harpooner, vertebrates several hundred meters long and proportional in bulk live at such depths. The surface area makes up millions of square centimeters, and the pressure they undergo must be assessed in billions of kilograms. Calculate then how much resistance of bone structure and strength of constitution they need in order to withstand such pressures. They need to be manufactured, Ned replied, from sheet iron plates eight inches thick like ironclad frigates. Right, Ned. Then picture the damage such a mass could inflict if you were launched with speed at an, uh, an express train against a ship's hull. Yes. Indeed. Maybe. Well, the bit he's forgetting, which is probably the most important bit, is that creatures at that depth under that pressure will explode when taken up to, to like, our pressures. I suppose that isn't technically true because of, like, sperm whales and stuff can dive down to tremendous lengths, but... I, like, if you live under that amount of pressure and then you swim upward to where there is less pressure, your body expands. And if you do that too quickly, you'll explode. Um, simply because the pressure on the inside of your body is greater than the pressure surrounding your body. Therefore, pfft. Um, that's why uh, when you go scuba diving, you need to ascend slowly and you gotta wait like 15 feet below the surface of the water for like 15 minutes. Otherwise, your lungs can burst and you'll die. So, because pressure on the outside is greater than, or pressure on the inside would be greater than the pressure on the outside, you kind of got to wait for your body to equalize again, and then you can surface. Um, so, yeah. Sperm whales really do kind of 
do their own thing, though, because they can swim at the top, and they can dive down and swim at the bottom, and they can do everything in between, and they're incredibly cool. So, I'm sure there are other whales that can follow such things as well. And then there are, like, the giant squids who swim near the surface for some reason. Uh, so, I don't know. I guess as long as they do it slowly, they can traverse the, the, the strata. They just gotta be careful about it. So. Uh, do, do, do. Well, yes, indeed, maybe. The Canadian replied, staggered by these figures, but still not willing to give in. Well, have I convinced you? You've convinced me of one thing, Mr. Naturalist, that deep in the sea, such animals would need to be just as strong as you say, if they exist. But if they don't exist, my stubborn harpoon is, how do you explain the accident that happened in the Scotia? It's maybe... Ned said, hesitating. Go on. Because it just couldn't be true, the Canadian replied, unconsciously echoing the famous catchphrase of the scientist Arago. But his repli this reply proved nothing other than how bullheaded the harpooner could be. That day, I pressed him no further. The Scotia's accident was undeniable. Its hole was real enough that it had to be plugged up. I don't think a hole's existence can uh, be more emphatically proven. Now then, this hole didn't make itself, and since it hasn't resulted from underwater rocks or underwater machines that you know of, it must have been caused by a perforating tool of some animal. Now, for all the reasons uh, put forward to this point, I believe that this animal was a member of the branch Vibrata, class Mammalia, group Pisciforma, Pisciforma, and finally, order Cestacea. As for the family uh, in which it would be placed, baleen, whale, sperm, whale, or dolphin, the genus to which it belonged, and the species in uh, which it would find its proper home, these questions had to be left for later. To answer them called for dissecting this unknown monster, to dissect it called for catching it, and to catch it called for harpooning it, which was Nedlin's business, and to harpoon it called for setting it, which was the crew's business, and decide it called for encountering it, which was a chancy business. Ah, oh, that's a fun, that was a fun list of, list of things. I enjoyed that bit, that was fun. Oh, this is a bit of a weird side tangent um but then again what what isn't really you know in the grand scheme of things uh i'm sure if you are as big of a disney nut as i am and i'm a big disney nut that you saw the news that they are rebranding splash mountain uh to be a story continuation of the movie the princess and the frog splash mountain is my favorite disney ride um, I absolutely love like the zippity doo dah song. Everybody's got a happy place, a happy place of do ho ho. It it's the best in my opinion of the balance between a dark theme ride and a thrill ride in the in the form of a log flume. Um, I say thrill ride in the in the actual like definition of what type of ride it is. Um, not so much in that I I felt the ride was thrilling. It does have some thrills. It does get the heart a-pounding. It's a good time. I love it. Um, and I approve of the change. Don't get me wrong. Um, as much as I love Splash Mountain, you can't ignore the fact that the origin of the characters involved in that ride come from an incredibly racially insensitive film. Um, and it's a wise move of Disney to distance themselves from such things. But along, like even outside of the, the racist undertones of Song of the South, and its relation to Splash Mountain. Disney needs to remain current. It needs to remain a bastion of what today's cultures and perspectives are. That's what Disney needs to do. That's what Disney's always done. You know, you may think about like the changes they've made to Epcot in like the last 10 years, the changes they're making to Epcot now. And Epcot is all about the world as it is now. 
You've got the World Showcase, which literally tells you about the cultures of different countries. You've got Future World, which is outdated. It needs to be updated. Their environmental messages are no longer relevant. They're still relevant in kind of like a, you know, oh, we need to save the environment sort of way, but the details, you know, the science behind it has changed since those rides were made, and they need to be updated. And the same is true for all the parks. You know, Song of the South, while in our cultural sphere, is incredibly insensitive and probably was considered insensitive back then, but you could argue that it was a different time. So it wasn't considered to be as awful as it is now. But times change, so too needs to be the changes in the rides. You know, there was that scene in Pirates of the Caribbean with the with the prostitutes um, being auctioned off, I think. And then they changed that scene to where um, Scarlet is now uh, a gun-toting pirate. And it's fucking rad. And yeah, Disney absolutely needs to be making these sorts of changes. So while I will lament the loss of my favorite ride, the ride itself, like the physical ride, the thrill aspect of it remains intact. Um, and I honestly believe that uh, a continuation of The Princess and the Frog with Disney's modern um, animatronic technology is probably going to look and sound and be amazing. It, it simply just will be. I think it's going to be it's going to be really fun. I would absolutely love if they somehow kept Zippity Doodah in there because um, I feel like that's one of those Disney songs that doesn't get enough credit. Um, it's all about having a wonderful day. Plenty of sunshine heading my way. Zippity Doodah, Zippity Day. So it's, yeah. Um, I just wanted to get that off my chest because Disney's gone through a lot of changes even in the last like two years really the Disney parks have evolved tremendously Disney Plus has come out it's it's completely changed the landscape of what it means to consume Disney media and it's it's refreshing one might say I know a lot of people out there are not as enamored with Disney as I am and they see this as just like this kind of omnipresent um, entertainment conglomerate that is slowly and systematically taking control of your entire existence um, but at least they're keeping that message up to date and they're they're working towards making each ride culturally relevant and respectful in today's world um, honestly outside of Splash Mountain Pirates of the Caribbean had its own issues you could argue it's a small world has some problems that they should probably address um in terms of like uh cultural sensitivity and stuff like that but i'm sure um if it needs to be changed disney will change it because i feel like we can we can expect that from them um like i don't think outside of general like i don't i haven't checked and i don't know um but i don't recall seeing like an, a a higher level of outcry about Splash Mountain being related to Song of the South in today's cultural sphere than there ever was. You know, I'm sure there was constant people being like, oh, is it Song of the South? Um, I'm pretty sure Disney just made that alteration of their own volition. I could be wrong, but I, I'm pretty sure that it wasn't like public outcry because I don't think Disney's ever really caves to that, you know? Um, I think Disney will do what Disney wants to do kind of regardless of whatever we think about it so yeah um yeah i approve of the change and i'm excited to see what the new splash mountain will look like um i'm also curious if i imagine they're changing bold splash mountains um in land and world that would be that would make sense to me kind of like uh star wars land um or perhaps they'll keep one intact like they did with the guardians of the galaxy ride in disneyland and 
Tower of Terror in Disney World. Um, I guess we'll see as the future progresses. But good job, Disney, for, for getting around to that. Goodbye, uh, uh, original Splash Mountain. You came from not a great source material, but you were my favorite ride, and you probably still will be. Um, and let's welcome uh, Princess and the Frog in a bigger uh, kind of setting. It's getting more attention in the Disney parks, which is absolutely a good thing because it's a it's an underrated movie. Um, it's got Keith David in it. Who doesn't like Keith David? Vice President Keith David. I'll move on next thing to the podcast. things to share. One of them's really quick, uh, and the other one's a little bit longer and a bit more exciting. Uh, so the first thing is that I finally got a new graphics card. I know nobody in the world is going to care besides me, so that's why it's over quickly. It's a 2070. I upgraded from a 960. It's uh, it's nice. It's big. Um, and it uh, it runs like a dream. I'm playing Elder Scrolls Online on ultra, ultra clarity, and um, it, looks, it looks good. Um, I think the game that I... Uh, enjoyed the updated graphics on the most was um a game i picked up with the the steam summer sale i mean that of the ones i've experienced elder scrolls online looks absolutely gorgeous but it already did so it's not like a, a big drastic improvement um but i think uh star wars battlefront 2 the remake of it has a a pretty concrete um difference that is uh, particularly enjoyable so I'm, i am very much enjoying uh, playing that game, just looking at how awesome the like the foliage looks and the lasers and all that shit, it just looks really good. So it's it's a lot of fun. But yeah, I got a new graphics card. And uh, the other thing is, um, I've been looking for um, my own place to live uh, for quite some time now. And I uh, I mean I haven't signed the paperwork yet, but it's basically a done deal. Um, to move into a new place coming up here in August. Um, I will be packing over the course of July and throwing all my things into boxes or donating the vast majority of it because I have a lot of crap I don't need. Just like so much crap I don't need. Um, clothes were the easiest. If it was like anything smaller than a large, I can't wear it anymore. So off it went. Um, that was the, that was the easiest bit to go through, but now I've got to go through just my crates of crap and going like, well, I don't need this, but I like it. Do I want it? Sure. Maybe. I don't know. Well, I suppose I can always get rid of it later. I'm not going to get rid of this later. Why am I even pretending? I'm just, I should get rid of it now, but I don't want to. That shit. Um, for all of my stuff. I think the biggest one is my drum set. Like, it's an apartment I'm moving into, so, I mean... You can kiss playing the drums goodbye, but I did just find out about these things, these, like, mesh drum heads that give you the tact, like, uh, I think it's, like, 80% of the tactile feedback of drumming with, like, none of the sound. Um, and then I suppose if there is any sound, I can always just stuff them full of towels or pillows or something like that and just completely deaden the sound, um, and get the, uh, the exercise from it. But then at that point, I might as well just be whacking my couch with drumsticks. Um, and that hasn't, uh, not, then that's not like, I've thought about that as an, as a, as a viable option. Um, I, I, I like, I like my drums. I want to have my drums with me. If I can find a place to store them, I will. Um, but I can also just, uh, move them later, uh, from their, from their current spot. 
They don't have to come with me in this initial move. I can always come back and grab them. So that's very exciting. It's like it doubles my commute, but when my commute is only 10 minutes long, it doesn't particularly matter. And it's a it's a brand new building. No one's ever lived in it before. It's going to have a gym. as an Indian washer and dryer. It's fairly large. My apartment in college was just a hair under 500 square feet. And this is over 650 square feet. So it's a considerable size improvement, which is very exciting for me. It's got a walk-in closet. Um, and that's pretty much... Oh, it has a balcony too. Um, and I think that's pretty much everything I know about it, about the apartment. Um, because the problem is because it's a brand new building, it is still actively being built as of right now. And it will continue to being built until like the end of July. So I haven't actually seen the apartment yet, um, which is akin to buying a car without test driving it. So it's a little scary in that front. But my, my hope is that because it's a brand new building and all this other stuff, it should be pretty good. Um, and it's a, it's a little pricey. Uh, in terms of, you know, what I'll be paying per month. But let's be honest, I spend my money on a lot of dumb crap and I could stand to be a little bit more frugal. Um, it certainly will not pauper me. Let's put it that way. I will um, I will not uh, be losing money on this deal. Um, I won't be saving money at the rate I am now, uh, but I will still be in, in a pretty good spot. So I'm pretty happy about that. And yeah, I'm, I'm really excited. It's always nice to have... Um, your own place and I keep getting waves of uh, like periodic bits of joy when it comes to what I'm going to be doing with like I need to get a couch number one so going uh, furniture shopping is, is very much high on my list and I've been doing a lot of looking around and I'm trying to expand my horizons beyond Ikea um, even though Ikea is super convenient and very inexpensive um I'm checking to see what else there is, but I'm, I'm slowly figuring out that, I mean, there's a reason why Ikea is so popular, is because it's very convenient and very inexpensive, um, and everything else I'm looking at is expensive, and much like test driving a car or seeing an apartment before you sign it, I want my ass in that couch before I fucking buy it. I'm not, I'm not buying a couch unless I've sat in it, like, that's... I need, I need to know. I need to know what it feels like. I need to know how plush you were talking. I got to test it. I got to test drive this couch. So that's like the first big bit of furniture I know I'm going to need. Um, I also need to make sure that the TV um, that I have that will be coming with me actually works. Because um, that's going to essentially act as my third monitor. Um, I'm going to HDMI it from my computer into the TV. And that will be like how I watch movies and stuff when I have friends over. When the world hasn't exploded. But, like, I'm so excited to decorate the apartment for Christmas. And I'm so excited to have all of my nerd shit, like, on display. Um, including my collection of mugs. Which, honest to God, is probably around 80 or so. 80 or so mugs. I've got 36, like, in the house with me that I use on rotation. And then I have another, like, 40 to 50 out in the garage with the rest of my crap. And I, honest to God, couldn't tell you what any of those look like. Except I know one of them is in the shape of a D20 and has a lid on it. And I love it. Um, so I'm going to have a, 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 a display unit for, for all my mugs. Um, it'll be practical too because I can't have my mugs taking up like four cabinets in the kitchen by themselves. Plus, if they're stored like that, you can't really access like the ones in the back. And it's not a good rotation. But if I have them all like basically along a single shelf, I can just run down the shelf and 
utilize all of the mugs in rotation. So this is something that nobody cares about but me. But yes, I'm very excited. I keep getting like Sims vibes. You know, when you boot up the Sims, the most exciting part of that game for me is the creation of the Sims and then the building and the designing of the house. And then once the Sims like start living in the house is when I get bored and eventually take out the, the ladder in the pool and have them drown. Um, but it's, it's that decoration part. And now I'm like, oh man, I get this brand new space to decorate and organize the furniture and put everything exactly where I wanted to because no roommates, so no one would be able to tell me that something shouldn't go there. And I'm really, really excited about it. Just the just the freedom to be able to do that is is just phenomenal. And I know one of the things I want to do is like in my college apartment, my desk was the the centerpiece of the living room. It was a giant L-shaped desk. And in that apartment, shelf space was at a premium. So the giant desk made sense. In this apartment, shelf space should be readily accessible and not at a premium, meaning that I shouldn't need a giant fuck-all desk. Which means I want the centerpiece of the living room to be the couch. And I want that couch to fucking stand out. I want that couch to be like, blam, this couch is comfy as fuck. Put your butt here. And so I don't want like, I'm not, I'm not discounting colors. And I think the, like, I really want the couch to be something awesome to look at. Like I want it to be vibrant, you know, I'm like, if it was a royal purple couch, I think I would love that. I think I'm, I might not go like, I want it to be like a vibrant, darker color. Um, so like a royal purple would be really cool. Like maybe, maybe like a really dark green, um, could be really neat. Um, it really depends. I, I, I don't know. Like once I find the couch, I guess I'll look at what colors are available and whichever one speaks to me the most. Um, but life is too short for everything to be black. You know, in high school, I wore black t-shirts all the fucking time with like vinyl decal logos on them and. I am technically wearing one of those right now, but it's, you know, you want to, you want to get some, you want to pop a color in there. So I would love for the couch to be like, just this beacon of like, wham, check out this couch. It's inviting. You want to put your butt in it. So yeah, I might do some color theory, um, studies because I also don't want to get a couch that like makes me anxious, you know, like a, like a red or a, like a neon orange that signifies like warning and danger. Um, and in, in your, in your brain fruits. I'm not sure how much stock we can actually put in color theory, but as it makes sense to me, you know, you find some colors comforting more than others. And like blues and whites and greens for me are always very comforting colors. Maybe I'll just find a blue, white, green striped vinyl couch. <laughs> it sounds terrible. Um, yeah, I'm very excited. Um, and I will naturally keep you guys posted as the, the weeks progress, um, especially when it comes to the actual move week. Uh, where I hope that I will have enough time to prep another episode, but we'll we'll know like um, come like the 28th, like the week before, we'll know if um, if I had enough time to pull that off or not. But uh, I'll keep you guys posted. Anyway, let's move on to the next thing on the podcast. Chapter five, random. 
For some while, the voyage of the Abraham Lincoln was marked by no incident. One cir but one circumstance arose that displayed Ned Lynn's marvelous skill and showed just how much confidence we could place in him. Off the Falkland Islands on June 30th, the frigate came in contact with the fleet of American whalers, and we learned that they hadn't seen the narwhal. But one of them, the captain of the Monroe, knew that Ned Lind had shipped aboard the Abraham Lincoln and asked him in hunting a baleen whale that was in sight. Anxious to see Ned Lind at work, Commander Farragut authorized him to make his way aboard the Monroe, and the Canadian had such good luck that with um good uh good luck that with a right and left shot, he harpooned not one whale, but two, striking the first straight through the heart and catching the other one a few minutes later. Assuredly, if the monster had ever had to deal with Nedlin's harpooned, I wouldn't bet on the monster. I fucking would. Anyway, the frigate sailed along the eastern coast of South America with pro the frigate sailed along the east coast of South America with prodigious speed. Wait. Um. Oh. Okay. Yeah. That, no. This is fair. So off the Falkland Islands on June thirtieth. Where the fuck are the Falkland Islands? I thought they were further south than where they currently are. Uh. Falkland Islands are located. Yeah. Um. I guess this is the Strait of Magellan. I don't know. Um. Cause hold on. Cause yeah, the Falkland Islands are like pretty far fucking down there near the tip of Tierra del Fuego. Um. Which is what I thought. But then the next line says the frigate sailed along the east coast of South America with prodigious speed. By July third, we were at the entrance of the Strait of Magellan, abreast of Cabo de la Virginias. Uh, but Commander Farragut was unwilling to attempt this torturous passageway and maneuvered instead to double Cape Horn. Um, it took them four days to sail from the Falkland Islands to Cape Horn. How much, how much land is that? It's like 200 miles. I guess? Yeah, you know what? Back in those days. Probably. Probably back in those days. Shit takes a while. So, sail around Cape Horn. Isla de los Estados. Island at the end of the world. Yes, Tierra del Fuego. It's such a beautiful land down there. It's crazy cool. Crazy cool. I'd love to visit it someday. If I can ever be fortunate enough to, to sail down there. Ashwaya. Oh, man. Ah, it's so pretty. Anyway, sorry. I'm Google mapping. When I should be book reading. Um, yeah. The crew sided with them unanimously. Indeed, we were likely to encounter the narwhal in such a cramped strait. Many of our sailors swore that the monster could not negotiate the passage simply because I used to beg for it. Near three o'clock, and I guess most of these people are American. Now that I think about it, because they set sail out of New York, but that's why. Near three o'clock in the afternoon on July 6, 15 miles south of shore, the Abraham Lincoln doubled its solitary islet at the tip of the South American continent. That stray rock Dutchman seaman had named Cape Horn after their hometown of Horn. Of course, uh, was our course was set for the northwest, and the next air frigate propeller finally churned the waters of the Pacific. Open your eyes, open your eyes, repeated the sailors of the Abraham Lincoln, and they opened amazingly wide. Eyes and spyglasses, a bit dazzled, it is true, by the vista of $2,000, didn't remain at rest for an instant. How much is $2,000 back in 1867 money? Let's find out. Uh, $2,000 in 1867. Um, inflation calculator tells us that that is... Do, 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 do. No, $2,000 in 1867 would be worth about $34,000 today. $34,647. $34, that is not too shabby 
for spotting something just like off the coast to wherever, you know? That's a that's pretty good, all things considered. I would be happy with that payday. Day and night we observed at the surface of the ocean, and those with nycaloptic nycaloptic sure eyes whose ability to see in the dark increased the chances by 50% had an excellent shot at winning the prize can people see in the dark is that a is that a thing hold on just googling so much right now n y c t a l o p i c eyes um yeah it comes from a greek word um night blindness is apparent what the fuck it's condition making it difficult or impossible to see in relative darkness interesting i think he got confused here because i think the word he uses is the exact opposite of the word that he probably wanted anyway as for me i was hardly drawn to the lure of money and yet was far from the least attentive on board snatching only a few minutes of four meals and a few hours of sleep come rain or shine i no longer left the ship's deck sometimes bending over the forecastle railing sometimes leaning against the stern rail i eagerly scoured that cotton-colored wake that whitened the ocean as far as the eye could see how many times i shared the excitement of general staff and crew when some unpredictable whale lifted its backish back blackish back above the waves in an instant, the frigate's deck would become densely populated. Cowls over the companion ways would vomit. A torrent of sailors and officers. With panting chests and anxious eyes, we would, uh, we each would observe the cessation's movements. I stared. I stared until I nearly went blind from worn-out retina. While Cowsell, as stoic had ever, kept repeating to me in the same, in a calm tone, If Master's eyes would stop kindly bulging, Master will see farther! But what a waste of energy. The railing would change course and raced after the animals had only to find an ordinary bailing whale or a common sperm whale that soon disappeared amid a chorus of curses. However, the weather held good. Our voyage was proceeding under the most favorable conditions. By then, it was the bad season in the southernmost regions because July in this zone corresponded to January in Europe. But the sea remained smooth and easily, vis um, and easily visible over a vast perimeter. Nedland still kept up the most tenacious skepticism beyond his spells on watch. He pretended that he never even looked at the surface of the water, at least while no whales were in sight. And yet the marvelous power of his vision could have performed yeoman's service. But the stubborn Canadian spent eight hours of um, every twelve reading or sleeping in his cabin. A hundred times I chided him for his unconcern. Bah, he replied. Nothing's out there, Professor Arnox. And if there is some animal, what chance would we have of spotting it? Can't you see we're just wandering around at random? People say they've sighted the slippery beast again in the Pacific high seas. I'm truly willing to believe it, but two months have already gone by since then. Judging by your narwhal's personality, the hate's growing moldy from hanging out too long in the same waterways. It's blessed with a terrific gift of getting around. Now, Professor, you know even better than I that nature doesn't violate good sense, and she wouldn't give some naturally slow animal the ability to move swiftly if it had need to use that talent. So if this beast does exist, it is already long gone. That is the first bit a lot. Like, come on, of course that's what's up. The beast has moved on. The beast was gone by the time you heard the beast was there. It's all been pointless, but that's fine. I had no reply to this. Obviously, we were just groping blindly. How else could we go about it? All the same, our chances were automatically pretty limited. Yet everyone still felt confident of success. Not a sailor on board would have bet against the narwhal appearing, and soon. On July 20th, we cut the Tropic of Cape Horn longitude to 105 degrees, and by the 27th of the same month, we had cleared the equator on the 110 meridian. 
These bearings determined the frigate took a more decisive westward heading, tackled the seas of the Central Pacific. The commander frigate felt, with good reason, that it was best to stay in deep water and keep its distance from continents and islands, whose neighbors the animals always seemed to avoid. No doubt, a bosun said, because there isn't enough water for him. So the frigate kept well out uh, when passing the Tuamotu, the Marquesias, and the Hawaiian Islands, then cut the Tropic Cancer longitude, longitude 132 degrees and headed for the seas of China. And we're finally in the area of the monster's latest antics. And all and, and, and in all honesty, shipboard conditions became life-threatening. Hearts were pounding hideously, gearing up for futures full of incurable aneurysms. The entire crew suffered from a nervous excitement that is beyond me to describe. Nobody ate, nobody slept. Twenty times a day, some error in perception or an optical illusion of some sailor perched in the cross trees would cause intolerable anguish for this and this emotion, repeated twenty times over, kept us in a state of irritability so intense that a reaction was bound to follow. This reaction wasn't long in coming. For three months, during which each day seemed like a century, the Abrahamian plowed all the northerly seas of the Pacific, raced after whale sightings, abruptly veering off course, swerving sharply from one tack to another, stopping suddenly, putting off steam and reversing engines in quick succession at the risk of stripping its gears, and it didn't leave a single point unexplored from the beaches of Japan to the coasts of America, and we found nothing. Nothing except the immense, uh, the immenseness of deserted waves. Nothing remotely resembling a gigantic narwhal or an underwater islet or a derelict shipwreck or a runaway reef or anything the least bit unearthly. So the reaction set in. At first, discouragement took cold people's minds, opening the door to disbelief. A new feeling appeared on board, made up of three-tenths shame and seven-tenths fury. The crew called themselves out-and-out fools for being hoodwinked by a fairy tale. They grew steadily more furious. The mounds of arguments amassed over a year. That collapsed all at once, and each man now wanted only to catch up on his eating and sleeping, make up for the time he had so stupidly sacrificed. With typical human fickleness, they jumped from one extreme to the other. Inevitably, the most enthusiastic supporter of the undertaking became the most energetic opponents. This reaction mounted upward from the bowels of the ship, from the quarters of the monkheads, to the mess rooms of the general staff, and for certain, if it hadn't been put uh, for Commander Farragut's characteristic stubbornness, the frigate would have ultimately put back to the Cape in the south. But the futile search could not drag on much longer. The Abraham Lincoln had done everything they could to succeed, and had no reason to blame itself. Never had the crew of an American naval craft shown more patience and zeal. They weren't responsible for their failure. This was nothing to do but go home. A request to this effort was presented to the commander. The commander stood his ground. His sailors couldn't hide their discontent, and their work suffered because of it. I'm unwilling to say um, that there was mutiny on board, but after a reasonable period of... Um, but after a reasonable period... Of intransigence. Commander Farragut, like Christopher Crumbless before him, asked for a grace period of just three days more. After this three day delay, if the monster hadn't appeared, our Helmsman would give three turns of the wheel, and the Abraham Lincoln would chart a course toward European seas. This promise was given on November 2nd. It had an immediately effect of reviving the crew's failing spirits. The ocean were observed with renewed care. Every man wanted one last look to which, uh, uh, of, with which to sum up his experience. Spyglasses functions with feverish energy. Supreme challenge had been issued to the giant narwhal. The latter had no acceptable excuse for ignoring the summons to appear. Two days passed. The Abraham Lincoln stayed at half steam. On the off chance that the animal might be found in these waterways, a thousand methods were used to spark its interest, aroused from its apathy. Enormous sides of bacon were trailed in our wake uh, to the great satisfaction, I must say, of the assorted sharks. While the Abraham Lincoln heaved uh, to, its longboats radiated in every direction around it and didn't leave a single point of the sea unexplored. By evening of November 4th arrived with his underwater mystery still unsolved. At noon the next day, November 5th, the agreed-upon delay expired. After a position fixed, true to his promise, Commander Farragut would have to set his course for the southeast and leave the northerly regions of the Pacific decisively behind. 
By then, the frigate lay latitude 31 degrees, 15 degrees, uh, 15 feet north, and latitude 136 degrees, 42 feet east. The shores of the Japan were less than 200 miles to our leeward. Night was coming on. Eight o'clock had just struck. Huge clouds covered the moon disk, and then in its first quarter, the seas undulated um, placidly, uh, undulated placidly beneath the frigate's stem post. Just then, I was in the bow, leaning over the starboard rail. Council station beside me stared straight ahead. Roosting in the shadows, the crew examined the horizon, which shrank um, and darkened little by little. Officers were probing the increasing gloom with their night glasses. Sometimes, the murky ocean sparkled beneath the moonbeams that darted between the fridges of two clouds. Then all traces of light vanished into the darkness. Observing Cowsell, I discovered that just barely the gallant lad had fallen under the general influence. At least so I thought. Perhaps his nerves were twitching with curiosity uh, for the first time in history. Come on, Cowsell, I told him. It's your last chance to pocket that $2,000. A master will permit me saying so. Count Oliver said, I never expected to win that prize, and the unit government could have promised $100,000 and have been none the poorer. You're right, Count Sal. It turned out to be a foolish business after all, and we jumped into it too hastily. What a waste of time. What a futile expense of emotion. Six months ago, we could have been back in France. In Master's little apartment, Count Sal answered. In Master's museum. By now, I would have classified Master's fossils. And Master's Barbarossa would have been ensconced in a cage at the zoo at the Botanical Gardens, and it would have attracted every curiosity seeker in town. Quite so, Council. One moment, I imagine people will soon be poking fun at us. To be sure, Council replied seemingly. I do think they'll have fun at Master's expense. And must be said, it must be said, Council. Well, then it would serve Master right. How true. When one has the honor of being an expert as Master is, one mustn't lay himself open to. Council didn't have time to complete the statement. In the midst of the general silence, a voice became audible. It was Nedlin's voice, and it said, Ahoy! There's the thing in question. Abreast us, off abreast of us to leeward. Well, Nedlin found it. Looks like Nedlin gets the gold. Thank you very much for listening to this week's episode of the Going Up Cast. I hope you are enjoying Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea. Um, oh gosh, what else are we talking about this week? Splash Mountain getting a new fresh coat of paint. Uh, PJs, and of course. On your graphic card and me moving house. I hope you're all staying safe out there in these turbulent times. Make sure you keep washing those hands. And I will see you all throughout this week for, uh, for more Peter Pan. And next week with another episode of the Going Up Cast. Have a good one, everyone.